0: So yeah, I, I've i been thinking a lot about, well, I think the American dream is fraught, but so much of it is about like the, the single family home. And as I've been doing my own research about the history of single family homes, and it's just kind of like so counterintuitive to to like, like an indigenous thinking, right? Like if we wanna think about how indigenous folks talk about the land and then how white settlers talk about the land, it's just totally different. And I think if we're gonna get to a place around actual Everybody has housing, everybody has food, the things that I think are <laughs> basic human rights, everybody has healthcare. We're gonna have to stop thinking about like this is my little fiefdom that I mow and this is mine and you don't you don't step on it, right? Or we would say none of us own the land and we're grateful to be able to be here and we have a relationship with the land and it feeds us, it sustains us, and we sustain it. Hey everybody, welcome to the Interloper Podcast. Today, Elle is joined by Alicia Johnson, one of the exhibiting artists from our series, This Land is Your Land. As well as being a visual artist, Alicia Johnson is also curator and co-manager of Wa Nawari in the Central District in Seattle. To see documentation of Johnson's solo exhibition, Non-Committal, please go to interloperinterloper.com past conversations. Please enjoy this artist talk and conversation with Alicia and Elle.
1: So just starting off, what's the thing that you like talking about the most? I know you're often asked to talk about things that you do. What do you enjoy talking about the most?
0: Oh, that's a good question. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I know that probably is not the answer you, uh, you know, I, you know, I am an artist, right? And I work, but I don't like have a studio, right? That I go to every week and I'm trying to get back into that type of rhythm. So I feel like yeah, I was just talking to another artist administrator. Mm-hmm yesterday and he was saying he's been doing embroidery you know so we were both talking about like how do we find time to like make work so I think part of what was exciting about the interloper opportunity was Mm -hmm. anytime somebody invites you to make work then you're like okay now I have to do it (laughs) right of these ideas (laughs) that are just percolating and then all of a sudden life gets in the way a good friend of mine and I um we're collaborators and we always talk about like The dream is to be like one of those artists like on Art 21, you know, Mm -hmm. (laughs) go to the studio every day and make all this work. And I'm like, and you look at them and you're like, well, they're making this incredible work because this is their full time job. Right. Like, there's There's you can't get to like the inner recesses of yourself as an artist as a you know doing it part-time so I think I'm really trying to figure out how to have dual practices I think Mm -hmm. I've been doing a lot of public art administration which is cool and I'm good at it but I Mm -hmm. think that I want to jettison some of that work out of my portfolio and just focus on curating at Wanawari which is a black art center in the central district and then also working on my own art career and kind of having those two things be the things that are my big bodies of work I think
1: and one of the things I'm really interested in is I saw that you had mentioned in in one space that you were really influenced by the flexus movement yeah and I'm wondering if you be if you talk about that a little bit
0: yeah I mean um I feel like people don't talk about it that often mm-hmm. really enough but I was like I don't know I thought it was cool in art school um but also I like worship to the shrine of Yoko Ono <laughs> so, uh you know she's one of my biggest art heroes but also I have so many like I say that and then I list like 20 other people so whatever
1: right right
0: but I think uh so I'll step backwards uh, a second and and talk about well, I'm going to talk about Yoko for a second but I I'm originally a poet I mean I'm still a poet but mm-hmm. that's my first art form really And so um, a lot of my work is text-based, which was also what was exciting about this was then I get to kind of flex my muscles. And I think like, honestly, in art school, I was like, I really wanted to have like a Jenny Holzer, like out on Times Mm. Square type of thing. So I felt like I was living my best life uh, (laughs) through Interloper and having a big billboard. I just think there's something about capturing people's attention that way. And then also I'm just really into public art, right? Because it's infiltrating people's consciousness, right? They're not going into a particular space knowing that they're entering into something. They're touching people where they are and where they live at. But Fluxus um, was really about democratizing art, right? And they had these little tiny um, art museums that you could make yourself or take home and have your own art museum. And I think that I kind of hate the preciousness of around art a lot like Mm. people feel so uncomfortable they feel like they have to know the history of art to even go to art walk um and so a lot of my work outside of an artist being an artist has been trying to kind of break down those barriers for folks to feel like they belong in the art world too and so I think this idea of feeling like anything anybody can have an art museum anybody can have an object that they can have that art object it's it's accessible to them is something that's really exciting to me so i usually do weird kind of things i did like keychains a couple years ago that had love poems on them Um, but i really liked this idea that the artwork was something that was functional and usable for the everyday so that does show up in my work (laughs) obviously not in this piece but it does show up in my work in other ways i think Yeah. And and every once in a while I'm like, I just want to make paintings and sell them like my other friends who make money. And then I (laughs) end up making more weird shit.
1: (laughs) Yeah. So this is my favorite question to ask everyone. And it's the question that every artist hates, including myself, but who is your audience? Who are you making work for?
0: I'm going to Simone Lee um, famously says that her work is for black women. Um, And I think that there's definitely some truth in that for me um but i also would think that working as a public artist right like everybody is kind of well The the where you're citing your artwork is the audience and you have to kind of you want the work to be your own but you also want it to be something that like is reflective of that community and those people so i think that i end up working in ways that bring in other people i i I do like to work uh for lack of a better word, social practice, you know, everybody's like, all these things are kind of over terms or whatever. Yeah. But um, I, I think even in college, I was working in a way where I was bringing in other people into my art practice. So Black women, but then also probably hyper local, hyper specific communities that I'm interested in like collaborating with or learning more about. Would probably be my answer to that.
1: Do you feel like in your work that you create those multiple levels of meaning where, like, if Black women are your audience, that there's still an entry point for anyone that's not a Black woman? Or do you feel like you're really honing into one audience and you're kind of like, it doesn't matter if you get it, it's not for you?
0: This is a conversation I've had over the years. I don't know if I make Black art, which is a weird (laughs) thing to say as a Black woman and a Black artist, but you know. I think you could look at my work and read it many different ways, but I mean, obviously I show up in the world as a black woman, right? So it's not like I, I feel like my work is divorced of race, but the way that I'm necessarily looking at some of these issues might not be, well, it basically answers your question, which is, I think there is multiple entry points for people who aren't necessarily black women, but that's always going to be my vantage point. Cause that's my perspective. You know, even the work I did for you, right. Which is, um, I'm in a situationship with my hometown. I don't know if any of that necessarily is like I'm not necessarily using like colloquialisms that are from my culture necessarily. Some of it is also like dipping into millennial terms. Right. But for me, it is very much a commentary as somebody who's lived in the city, born in the city who can't afford to live here and has been priced out, which is a situation that is happening, not just to black folks, but Asian folks, indigenous folks and many other folks but is probably um, black folks are at the highest brunt of that and it's it's been really quite demoralizing to live in a place that is constantly telling you you don't belong here basically So yeah, I, could, I talk to other people about what it would mean to like move to places like, like Atlanta or Chicago where there's much more um, Black folks like me, but then also there's those of us that feel like we have to kind of keep our foothold here for our own you know legacy and histories and for our children. So I haven't figured that out all yet, but yeah. that's all, all of that is embedded in my work, right? Whether or not you actually see a Black person when you look at the saying <laughs> or not, yeah. <laughs>
1: let's talk a little bit about the piece that you did for interloper called non-committal do you want to just talk about the piece a little bit more for those so the people people that are listening that didn't get a chance to see it although you can go to our website and see an image of it oh cool. even though it's been taken down yeah it
0: has been taken down I actually live four blocks away
1: from from the interloper site so I was able to walk to
0: the opening that was really cool yeah and I think that was also an opportunity for me to think about locality and space right like if there's a billboard four blocks away from the home I was, I was taken from the hospital, university hospital to that house and have lived all over Seattle. And now I'm back living with my my father and can't afford rent and figuring all that stuff out. What what is what would I want to like yell out to the neighborhood, really like city and Wedgwood about who I am and what my experience is, right? And I think just like what we're, I was just saying earlier, like there's parts of me that, love so much about Seattle, our history and the type of kind of specific type of creative culture that we've been able to foster here that also has been dissipating and getting (laughs) gentrified out as well. But then also this huge kind of uh, mass entrance of wealth that isn't old money, it's new money, right? So everybody's been trying to figure out the tech money for like 30 years and what they'll invest in. And, and they're they're really transitory. Um, so somebody had said to me, they were working at Amazon. And I think it's like only 15% of Amazon's workforce have a desk. And they can go around all, like, you know, the domes and all this different stuff. But it, this person was saying to me, like, they're essentially homeless, right? They're like looking for a desk to go work or, mm-hmm. you know, someplace. And they were saying that that they believe that that goes to the ethos of their workers. And I was like, oh, that makes sense. Right. Because if you don't even have a desk to like put down roots, you're not going to necessarily put down roots in Seattle. You could see yourself like, oh, I'm going to be in Seattle for three years and I'm going to go to Michigan and I'm going to go here. Right. And so yeah. I think that's why it's been hard for those of us born and raised here to actually feel like we can kind of get entryways into that community and feel like we can kind of uh, co-mingle with them for like, mm-hmm. a better word. Um, But all of that, anyways, I mean, I'm going on a tangent, but all of that is wrapped up in what I'm trying to kind of understand for myself, which is where do Black folks go and build communities in the 21st century? So much of the story for the last 20 years has been about unaffordability and displacement, but people are going somewhere. Um, And these are conversations me and my partner have all the time. So I think I was really thinking about my relationship with Seattle being like a loveless emotionally abusive relationship. Yeah. Like, I don't think they've committed to me, but I'm still coming over for sleepovers. You know what I mean? Yeah.
1: <laughs> well, first of all, I think what you're saying about the um about the tech industry is interesting because even I know have friends that work in the different tech companies and So much is taken care of, whether it's like your food, your gym, like all these things, your work hours. And it's really interesting to see like, oh, you don't really even have a life outside of the company. And it's kind of designed that way. So if you quit the company, in a lot of ways, you lose everything, your community, all these other resources. So there is this like transitory nature that's built into it. But I think on top of it, something that's interesting is generational wealth that comes into play in Seattle. And not just you think about like old money, but... I always use this. I always use this example of I didn't come from a lot of money. I'm not going to inherit anything from my parents. That's fine. And I have friends that have been on the same like track as me professionally, same backgrounds, worked as hard. But like just this reality, that in the next like ten years, they're going to inherit money from their middle-class parents and they suddenly will be able to buy and afford houses or like they'll kind of jump that class and I think that's totally different within different communities but even just like middle-class generational wealth and how that's going to impact the ability to have roots in Seattle and you kind of see it around so I know how do you how do you see intergenerational wealth even playing into it
0: well it's everything that you just said right like I think I mean, I think I'll inherit something. Uh, <laughs> I'm not, I'm, to your point, I'm not, I'm not looking for it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Right. Um, well, you know, we don't even talk about this, but the middle, there is no middle class in America anymore. Right. 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 So, um, I like to say that cause I'm, I think it's a myth and you know, it's a problem,
1: but especially with generational wealth, I think we'll completely get rid of any semblance of it because then you'll just have people that are renters and people that are owners. Exactly.
0: Mm-hmm. I, I have a lot of friends in the same boat as you, mm-hmm. or the, like you said, the, the other both sides: people who will inherit stuff and be fine, or have already inherited, so their parents are like, "Here's your down payment for your house, whatever." Yeah. Um, and then people who have to start over, or like you know, I think a lot of the work at Wanawari is around that, right? So mm-hmm. Wanawari is a fifth-generation Black-owned home in Seattle Central District, and it's been in my partner's family for five generations, and um, we rent the house and give it back back to the black community as um, an arts and cultural center. But part of our work is social practice where we're paying the rent to keep this home in the family of a black family. But, you know, people end up being like this house is worth over a million dollars now. So Mm -hmm. if any of the siblings, can they afford to buy a million dollar house when their grandfather bought it for 10 grand or, you know what I mean? And it just keeps, the value keeps going up every, every year. So every time people think they have a strategy to get it, right? They get outmatched by the market. So we're looking at ways around like, you know, land conservancies and um, collective ownership and things like that, because I think that that's going to have to be the future, right? Like Mm -hmm. people are going to have to figure out how to live together, work together in different ways and get rid of single family housing.
1: Let me ask you a question. And it's, uh, because I, I, I'm really realizing when we're talking about this, that I think a lot about generational wealth. I'm a single mom. I'm like, I feel like I'm hustling, hustling, hustling just to survive. I'm exhausted. I don't have a support network to fall back on. But that's like my personal experience. And so I think about a lot about generational wealth and about how there should be an inheritance tax because we're just passing down wealth to the same wealthy people. But to me, that feels very different than like what you're doing with Wanarari, And some of it is specific because I'm white. And I'm thinking about most generational wealth is passed down through white communities and it keeps uh, white supremacy in power. It keeps Mm -hmm. wealthy white people in power. And so I often think about generational wealth through that one lens. And I'm realizing right now as we're talking, like it's a totally different lens when you're talking about generational wealth within the black community and you're talking about inheritance within family in the black community. So I'm curious if you talk a little bit about that difference.
0: Yeah. And I think there's some stuff that's similar, you know, like we were saying, like I'm in a collective of black folks and we have a susu, which is the West African tradition. It's like a collective savings club. So we all put in money every month and then one person gets the whole pot. But we also do it to kind of talk about collaborative, you know, cooperative economics and things like that. So we were just Mm -hmm. talking last Monday um, in our meeting, monthly meeting about somebody was saying, oh, like our grandparents, did, like they had great money skills and they didn't teach us. And I was like, my grandfather taught us. My grandfather had an eighth grade education and had two houses in Evanston and helped my dad with his down payment here. But that goes yeah. back to what you were saying. That's when there was a middle class when you could work, you could work one or two jobs and have a side hustle. He had three jobs, you know, like two side mm-hmm. hustles and one main job. But you know what I mean? Like he wasn't, a career, like, you know, he had a modest education, right? And I think there was other, in, in his grandfather, same. Um, I can't remember what he did, but he was, you know, kind of like a con- considered like a blue collar worker and was yeah. able to own six houses in the Central District, right? Because, you know, he was good with money and it was, there was a middle class. And then like like what you said was when people are supposed to be able to c- take those assets over, if they weren't able to access, mm. um, you know, the financial gains that the middle class would have had, I think that's where white people had the advantages, right? Because black folks mm-hmm. weren't getting those levels of jobs and things like that. So then they weren't able to take over those homes and then et cetera, et cetera. People to sell them and all, it's very complicated, complex that I can't get into.
1: Totally. Not all yeah. in this
0: podcast, but you know. So yeah, I mean, I'm thinking about, I think about all those th- things too, because I'm like, well, also it's just like, I don't want to have to wait for my parents to pass away to think that i'm gonna be able to have a place to live just like, like i'm a single yeah. mom too so i'm like i'd like my parents to live as long as possible mm-hmm. <laughs> so if that's the only way that i'm actually going to be able to get into a home that feels weird so yeah i i've been thinking a lot about well i think the american dream is fraught right so many reasons but so much of it is about like the, the single family home And as I've been doing my own research about the history of single family homes. And it's just kind of like so counterintuitive to like like an indigenous thinking, right? Like if we want to think about how indigenous folks talk about the land and then how white settlers talk about the land, it's just totally different. And I think if we're going to get to a place around actual everybody has housing, everybody has food. You know the things that I think are basic human rights. Everybody has healthcare. We're gonna have to stop thinking about like this is my little fiefdom that I mow and this is mine and you don't you don't step on it. Right. right? Or we would say none of us own the land and we're grateful to be able to be here and we have a relationship with the land and it feeds us, it sustains us, and we sustain it.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Right. And um, we're not there anywhere close to that. But I think that that type of thinking is what's gonna get us to where we need to be if we can ever get there.
1: I love that you're talking about this. I think it's such an important thing that we don't hear it talked about enough in Seattle in particular, especially I always think about Seattle is such a place of progressive ideas that don't always match with the action. And so like the yard sign thing is the typical example for me that I'm like the very houses that have this yard sign where it says Black Lives Matter, everyone's accepted and everyone's welcome. I'm often like, if you voted to keep your neighborhood a single family home zoning then you are essentially like keeping everyone else out it's it's going against what your yard sign is saying and i think this like the way that people vote and where people put their money in seattle doesn't match up with what they're saying as far as what they really what they say they care about so i think your point is really really well spoken and really well taken i wish we talked more about it as a community
0: well and i think the seattle you're talking about i don't know if it exists anymore i mean so Like, I was pretty flabbergasted at the last local election. Pretty much a bunch of people got elected on, like, a law and order platform. And we went (laughs) from really left to really right. And that was, like, unheard of in Seattle. But, you know, as me and other people have been talking about, people have been migrating here for these jobs. We don't know what their politics are. We're probably really at the point now to what you were referencing where the people have moved here and their politics have outweighed our radical politics or those people have been also pushed out because all the circus people i mean like seattle is a really funky cool place so Mm -hmm. our circus people and our punk people and all those other people they've all been pushed out too (laughs) um and so that's why i'm like oh you know like i'm not trying to beat up on tech workers because i don't really believe in doing that but there is a homogeneity homogeneity to them that i'm trying to we're all trying to understand like when um, I used to have a gallery on Capitol Hill, right? And Capitol Hill in Seattle is our historic um, uh, gayborhood, for lack of a better word. And um, once a lot of these tech workers started coming in and getting houses on Capitol Hill, because it's a great place, it's walkable, all the things I said, I love walkable, food to eat, get your groceries, da, da, da. There had been a a huge uptick in um, attacks of LGBTQ people, right? Mm -hmm. And I'm like, This is happening because people are moving into this neighborhood that don't share those values. And then they're asking people to leave or they're like harassing them. So I know all these queer folks that own condos, own property who moved out of Capitol Hill because they no longer felt safe. Mm -hmm. So, So I feel like there's like layers of loss of the Seattle that I know. And so that's what I'm saying. Like, I don't want a homogenous Seattle. I want us to kind of have all these different perspectives and people that used to make us feel really great and special. So I don't, I feel like we're at a precipice of what we're going to be. And, um, it's a very critical time to see what's gonna happen.
1: And not to be repetitive, but to kind of fine-tune it down to bring it back to your piece, non-committal. In your statement about it, you talked about your relationship with Seattle. And you you kept calling Seattle she. Yeah. And so I thought it was really interesting when I was reading it. And I, I if I could ask in the kind of the context that we're talking about, who is she? Like if you're referring to Seattle and being in a relationship with Seattle, who is that?
0: Yeah, that's a good qu- I mean, it's all the stuff I love. Like I said, it's like um going to Fremont fairs and going to antique shops and there being, you know, um, anime conventions and all the stuff that I felt like um, anybody who was different and weird and special could flourish here. But also, you know, I think there is something about the ingenuity, I can't believe I'm even saying this, of like a Microsoft (laughs) and Amazon, but you know what I mean? Like as much as they're like really terrible, there is also something about, artistically and otherwise people move here cuz they feel like they can be creative and start new things. And I think that that has always been a really exciting spirit to be grown up in. I feel like there was a spirit of possibility that people have told me there's like an invisible caste system in America that we don't really talk about. Like the odds that you'll actually leave your birth class in America are very, very low. We just mm-hmm. talk about that it's possible. We're like in England right. stuff. People don't believe that's possible. So but I feel like Seattle is a place where you could actually move here and leave your birth class, right? You could start a new business. And um, and actually there's a long history of Black folks moving here um, to work at Boeing or to do other creative endeavors and interesting things. There was a Black gallerist here, uh, Zoe Dussain in like the 1940s showing like really incredible art. Um, so I'm just like, wow, like, you know, Seattle is just like a really interesting place. And so those are the things that I love about it. And then you already heard enough About what I don't. Well, do
1: you think that the things that you love, like, do you think the she of Seattle is still the same, the same Seattle? Like, all the things you're describing, I'm like, is that actually true now? Like, has it changed? Can people still come here and, and, you know, graduate out of their birth class, you know, to use the words that you were using? Or or do we have a different Seattle now that is the one that's not committing to you in your piece?
0: I think it's a different Seattle, but I'm hoping. Mm that grassroots organizers and taking it back to where you were at the beginning (laughs) and all the other people that have been working really hard prevail. I think, I mean, I think we can still turn it around. There's really great things happening. Also, it's imperative that some policy changes happen and some other type of things um, to be able to make sure that we don't lose the last bit of soul that we have. I guess that's my... (laughs) long long complicated answer to that right so i think the organizing that Africa town has been doing for over a decade and now you see mm. that they are able to bring black folks back to the central district there's all these black businesses opening up in the central district um and so but there's still this question i have of like all the new apartment buildings are still three thousand dollars for a one bedroom or whatever i can't afford it so right. who's going to be living in those right but if this is i mean one this was always a neighborhood that people came to for cultural activity. That's this is the neighborhood my family came to for cultural activity. So if that stays alive and it's black in that way, then that that's exciting, right? Um, I think that people have been organizing in the CID for a really long time. Um, There's um, Humbow's not hotels and other people that are really trying to keep the identity of the International District um, as well. So there's organizing that's happening. Excuse me. All over the city, that's really important. And I think it's going to work. So I'm hoping I can hold out long enough to see it work for myself, too.
1: (laughs) So, one of the things that I think about with just within, like, for one example, would be feminism that oftentimes in like first wave feminism so much about defining yourself as a woman was saying, I'm not a man, right? And so we've seen different waves of feminism, but still, I think so much about defining who I am as a woman is inherently tied to like saying, hey, I am not this, I am this. And I'm really interested in moving more towards defining myself as who I am, like this idea of being so full of who I am that you can't colonize me with your desires, with your ideas, that I don't need to tell you who I'm not because I'm so full of who I am. And I think that we're a long way off in, in many different places from getting there. But I really love when I see us moving toward that. And I I bring this up because I heard you speak one time and you were talking about how with Wanawari, so many people have come to you to talk about gentrification and de-gentrification. And I heard you say, and I hope I'm not misquoting you, but you're like, I just got tired of talking about gentrification. I want to talk about black joy. And I don't even remember saying that, but it really impacted me because I was like, this is what I'm talking about. This movement towards being so full of what is good that we don't have to even talk about what shouldn't happen because we're so full of what should be happening. So I'm wondering, one, did I quote you correctly? And two, what do you think about that?
0: <laughs> you did. And I still feel that way. What was happening in particular was like all these grad students were like emailing mm-hmm. and they were like, we got to write a paper on gentrification. I Googled it, you came up. And then we would sit down with them and they'd be like, but tell me about all the black people that lost their homes. And I'd be like, what? That's not what this project is about. And <laughs> how sad is it that they lost their homes and I was like oh this is trauma porn you Mm. actually and you know and I've been there like there's been how many panels for the last 10 years about gentrification and cd you know people I love have been on them all this stuff and none of them have solutions they just have black folks getting up there crying about Mm. how they lost their you know what I mean and I'm just kind of like and to everything you just said about like reiterating who I am and not what I lack I'm like I come from a very self-determined black lineage. Like Hmm. that's not anything about who I am, right? And this project is about black self-determination. We are black folks renting a black home, giving it back to black people as a way, strategy to use arts and culture to figure out how to stop displacement. There's nothing sad about that. (laughs) So, um, but when I was realizing, I was like, oh, people, but also I don't know if everybody's ready to hear about black resilience. It's like the thing, um, every time they make, like a big you know blockbuster like motion picture about slavery there always has to be i mean they're getting away from it now but it used to be Mm -hmm. there always had to be some white character because white Mm -hmm. people couldn't you know um relate if there wasn't a white person and they had to be the savior you know we couldn't save Mm -hmm. ourselves but the truth is we've actually always saved ourselves (laughs) there have been allies but we've been self-reliant and so I need people, you know, to back out of our story in that way. You know, I think we have a really great community of folks that totally get that. And once we stopped, we stopped using the word gentrification and started using anti-displacement. And that really helped with some of that. But I just, like you said, I just have to reiterate. I'm like, I'm not, this is not a Black pain story. If you want to go do that, you can find a movie on Netflix that will satisfy that for you. That's not what the story is about. And it's a happy story. You know, we're going to save the last three homes um, that frank and goldine green bought of the six mm. and they'll be permanently saved as cultural spaces it's super exciting I and mean, really yeah i know that's awesome saying that for the first time on your podcast <laughs> that's um, really cool <laughs> but um so that's why i'm just like there's you know it is a joy story and yeah, I just, like, my people didn't get through, like, all those hundreds of years of oppression by being, <laughs> moping around being sad. <laughs> just, trust me, there's so much song and dance and love that we share you know what I mean so
1: so to bring that back to the work that the piece that you made non-committal I was thinking about um like just like what you're talking about I just love how you've been talking about black joy and your resilience and I'm sitting there going like not only when we focus on what we perceive as lack because of the institution that was created but then we miss the ability to learn and that's what I love so much about this particular this land is your land where we had Deja uh, show her work as well because it was so much where I was like there's so much beauty in how she's talking about hair and relationship that is not talked about within the white, white female, white hair community. And I want to bring that into the conversation. And so not only do we focus on the wrong thing, but we miss so much that we could be learning. And so I'm curious, cause I'm fascinated by creativity and you are just filled with so much creativity and I see it in so many areas of the work that you do. And so I'm curious when you're talking about being in a situationship with Seattle and all the things we've talked about, how does that affect your creativity? What's the impact on your ability to be creative when so much shifting is so much is shifting around you?
0: Yeah, I mean, all of the all of the ways, you know, like um, mm-hmm. like I said, that artist I was talking to the other day, and we were joking about how expensive it is to have studio space, and he was like, it was cheaper for me to have studio space in London. I was just like, gosh. oh my god, <laughs> London's so expensive, but yeah, yeah. I mean, I think. I'm trying to figure out how much money I need to make to be able to thrive here and not mm-hmm. just surviving. Right. Cause to everything you just said when you're surviving, it's like, okay, I got to get my kid from here to here and do this and that and pay this bill and that bill. And then you feel guilty going and spending $200 at the art store, which is nothing. Okay. <laughs> you know yeah. I mean? And then you're like, okay, now I need to make something like we we're saying before that will sell because otherwise it feels decadent that I just spent all this money to make art um, when I'm just surviving. Um, and I, I just don't, I don't want to feel like artists have to be of this protected class, but they are jobs and they should be thriving. So, um, yeah, I think that that's totally affected my work. I think of what is the least amount I can live on and have an abundant life.
1: Yeah, well, well, the way that I think about it, and this is honestly, if if I could distill all my passions down to this one thing, it's about creativity. And and the way that I see it is that you have highly creative people, like you're a highly creative person that's been born out of resilience and all these things in your life. And you've practiced it like a muscle and you've kept yourself creative. But when you're trying to just figure out how you're going to pay your rent, where you're going to live, where you're going to make art. All of your creativity, the majority of your creativity is going towards survival. And I think like how many amazing things could we create in the world? How many advancements could we make if we could free up those creative minds to use that creative energy towards creating instead of surviving?
0: It's back to the art 21 right, <laughs> right. In studio every day i probably would have already solved gentrification
1: <laughs>
0: right right but yeah you need space you need dream space yeah i was thinking mm. i am such a big fan of the nap bishop or of the nap ministry and we we did a virtual thing with her a year ago but she's always really talking about our liberation our freedom talking connected to rest and i'm really trying to understand that for myself because we're just always mm. like, running 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 but like you, everything you just said, like to actually be creative and solve problems, you need space and time
1: mm-hmm. and
0: bandwidth to be able to do that.
1: And I think it's it's really misunderstood because I think that people think of artists as like, that's a privilege or lazy or all these things. But you think about this, this is where problem solving happens. And how are we going to solve problems if the very people that have, and and I personally don't think of creativity as something like a genius that you're born with. I think Scientifically, we can see that everyone's born with it, but then most people lose it because they go into fields and areas where they don't practice it. And it just so happens a lot of artists are practicing creativity. So they're maintaining their ability to problem solve. And so I, I think we really misunderstand how important it is to free up creative minds to create and they're not just making beautiful things like, you know, they're saying things, they're problem solving, they're thinking about life that we're all living and how to impact it.
0: Yeah. Well, and I think there's really interesting precedents across the country. Um, New York City has been putting artists in different departments like housing, justice, mm-hmm. immigration, etc., And then, use, you know, seeing what their thinking comes out of. And I think that that's a model that we should keep going because right, you bring that type of juice and I'm in conversations with developers where even when I, the little bit I'm thinking is just like a consultant they're like oh I wasn't thinking about it that, that way to your point right. I, I don't know like actually like sharing ideas with other people is like the hottest thing I think that's probably my yeah real art form is just like getting like oh, let's talk about this and this and solve that yeah I think that's like the true possibility for if everybody in Seattle could mind meld and work together we could mm-hmm. actually do some really interesting stuff around climate justice and housing justice, um, and wage justice.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: But oh, and it wasn't because you brought up wealth tax.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: But one of the critical issues in Washington is there is no state income tax. Right, right, right. Um, and so there's just they just keep adding all the pressure on property tax, which sales tax, yeah, yeah. And it's really interesting. Like I was talking to this parent and my kids cool and they're really cool they're like liberal and i was saying i was talking about how regressive property taxes was and he was like no it's not if i buy a million dollar house then i pay the property taxes on a million dollar house i was like no my dad bought his house in 1980 for thirty thousand dollars, and now it's a million dollars and he's and he right like, oh i forget about that right mm-hmm. and i was just thinking like oh if you're fairly liberal and you're not even thinking about this and this is literally impacting people every <laughs> day. there's right. some people who aren't realizing that and i think Again, it's just so inequitable. So then it forces people to sell because you're like, my house needs all these upgrades. My community's totally changed. I don't even feel home here. My kids have moved on and my property taxes are 10 grand plus a year.
1: Right.
0: I'll sell, get a smaller place, don't have to mow my lawn.
1: I know you know this, I'm repeating it, but just because I hadn't really thought about this until several years ago, I was talking to a friend and thinking about how regressive that idea of not doing an income tax in Washington state is. Because if you think about it, then you're really relying on the people that are spending money and who's spending all their money are people that are like, I'm zeroing out at the end of the month, you know? And so they're the ones that are holding the burden of tax paying. Whereas if you have a high income and you're able to save and invest, you're getting away with not actually feeding into the income. And you have people that are making lower money, working class that are upholding most of the taxes. Exactly. And it's something that you don't really think about until you like really, I didn't think about it. I was really processing through how regressive that policy really is.
0: Yeah. I didn't think about it either. And, um, sales tax, just like you said, is just as regressive. And then I started realizing how many people moved here because it was a tax shelter for them. You know, I mean, alone, if just, if Jeff Bezos just paid his actual taxes, mm-hmm. we could probably solve all our issues. <laughs> so right, that's right. I'm like, I'm, And I'm just like, I just think about how greed and all that other stuff because I'm just like, wouldn't you want to be benevolent in that way? Like, I know you want to send everybody to Mars, but you could actually still be like the richest person ever and just like provide free housing.
1: I want to poke a finger at a, a world that both of us are a part of the same idea. Even like when I was thinking about the Flexus movement, now a huge part of it came out of this like feeling about the elitist attitude of the art world. Exactly. And that still exists. And it's something that, and I think it's really interesting because you're playing this this role where you're doing, I think you brought up the word social practice, but there's a lot of conversation around like artists that are also social activists, who their art is about social practice. Versus like artists that are doing things in the community or social activists, but that's not what their art is like. And there's a lot of feelings on, on how that should be done or intermingled, but also the the art world itself. I often think like, who is seeing that artwork in the museums? Who is seeing the artwork in the galleries? Like who is the art world for? And that's a question I constantly ask. I know. People. I
0: mean, me too. I'm like, I love the art world and I hate the art world. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Talk about it like that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. We had an interesting, um, well, I'm not going to say the artist's name, but because it doesn't matter. But sure. there was an artist I've known for many years, and um, I was going to be exhibiting their work this year, or last year, sorry. And um, all their work has been collected. So I was like, yeah. okay, cool. So they were like, call these people to get see if you can get it out of their collections. And one of the museums was like, well, you know, this we invested money in this artwork, and there's a lot of sensitive materials. You know, there's like horse hair and da 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 and so we just need to know that like, you have the proper environment for this artwork. And I was thinking this black artist, mm. black and indigenous artists made this work um, with stuff that's around them, right? It's mm-hmm. part of their world. Now they're precious because you purchased their artwork. And now me as a black producer and black cultural site can't show the work because I don't have the right type of air conditioning. She mm-hmm. didn't make it in air conditioning. So I was right. just like, and me and her had this conversation she was like she's done but she was like i'm going to add to all my you know sale agreements that if a black or indigenous institution was to show my work that they get to do that no matter what but i was just That's kind smart. of thinking, like how did i already how did the work become unaccessible and mm-hmm. i have tried to get some work from like really high profile artists where you know they're like you need to have this projector and this th- this much space between this and, and then i'm like once you do all that you're saying that your work can only be shown in white institutions right? and who goes to those white. So I'm like, now you're removing your work from the audience it should be for. So I just, I have questions about that as somebody who presents work, you know? Um, right? And a lot of the artists we work with say, they're super excited that black folks will be seeing their work because a lot of the places they show, right. that's the audience they're working towards but they're not necessarily showing it to that audience. I think I'll have more to say about that as the years go on, as I understand mm-hmm. it I'm more, but I'm just kind of like, okay, yeah, it's just more ways that the art world becomes gated and then starts privileging right. whiteness, even over black artists.
1: Right. Totally. And not only whiteness, but also educated like class whiteness. Like I think about this with, cause I came from a family of more like working class, poor white people. And I think often like the work that I'm making is about where I came from in some ways, but I know that no one that I grew up with ever will ever walk into a gallery and see any of it. And so there's, it's just, you're getting to the tippy, tippy, tippy top of who's actually seeing this work, who's purchasing it, who it's available for. So we've talked about a little bit, I'd love to talk to you for hours, but we don't have a lot more time. Um, But we've talked about you being an artist and the work that you do in the community, but I'm interested also about the curation work you do at Wanawari. And I think being an artist and a curator, you have a really unique lens and so when you're looking at artists to bring in to your shows what are you looking for what kind of artists excite you what inspires you how do you think about your curation
0: honestly I just pick work that I'm excited about and you know I'm not like sometimes there's a theme but I just I, I just go look for either I mean it's been hard not being able to travel um and find work that way but like finding work on, online or recommendation so a different artist just recommended an artist to me and she'll be showing in our next show um, she lives in Washington but not in the greater Seattle area so like I love that people start telling me about other people's work and um but yeah I, and so the, every room in the house is an art room um, nobody lives here and so what I will say though is I'm interested in having a balance of discipline Right. So if I feel like there's too much 2D work, I'll definitely make sure, Okay, I need to have a video in there or a sound piece. So I definitely want as somebody goes throughout the house, I want there to be something for everyone. Right. Like every show I'd love, no matter who you are, to to your point, some people like the really high conceptual stuff. Some people like the stuff that's pretty like on the nose. (laughs) You can get it right away but also some people I've noticed have been more interested in oral history stuff, right? So everybody's different, but I like people to have something that speaks to them in each show. Um, and also, like I said, that hits to your different senses, visually, sound.
1: Are you led one way or the other? You try to make a balance between artists that are already well-known and have opportunities versus artists that haven't shown before.
0: The framing I've been using, which you probably hear everywhere is like local, regional, national. So I try to have always a Seattle-based artist, that's harder. for all the reasons that we just talked about for the last hour. (laughs) And then regional, which to me is all the way down to like Portland, all the way up to Vancouver. But I'm starting to also think about maybe the regional is also California. Like maybe it's just what is the connection or what I'm calling the I-5 corridor between these different places. Like there's so much similarity to the way that the Bay Area was gentrified to the way that Seattle was, but for different different and similar reasons, right? So if we had two artists speaking about that, what are gonna be the you know, similarities and differences and what can we start thinking about that? So that's more, it's more about regional in that way. And then honestly, like it's really intuitive and almost every time like stuff comes together where I'm like, oh my gosh, everybody I picked for this show is kind of in some way working in assemblage. How did I, I didn't even think about it that way. So that's what I was like, there's part of it that's just intuitive where I'm like, no, I don't think this person for this month and I start working stuff out and, and I'm just having fun.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's good creativity and curation right there, especially if you're having fun. Um, okay, so I've kept to you. I could talk to you forever. I really enjoyed this, but I have one last question for you. Um, what is next? What have you got in the pipeline? Uh, What is next? it's hard
0: to know there's a, <laughs> there's a pan. the pandemic won't end. Um, right. <laughs> but we, we have a show opening. It opens, um, January 14th through April 10th. New work from, like I said, local, regional, national artists. Mm-hmm. So we're, you can always come to want and see art. And then, um, me personally, I'm just starting to get back into the studio and start working on stuff. I had a show that was going to be at four culture two years ago. Oh my gosh. Um, So I know there's very postponed because of the pandemic, but I realized that I should actually start making that body of work. Um, So I'm excited about it. It's about um, the history of the numbers game and um, the lotto and and black people's relationship to it and stuff like that. So I'll be working on that.
1: On a personal level, I just want to say thank you for doing this. I, I've i heard you speak at different things and I've seen your work and the things that you do. And I think that the level of creativity that you're operating at is exactly, I just think what we need more of. And I I'm so passionate about creativity that when I see someone like you, I'm like, this is it. This is who people need to be listening to in every area of life, not just art. So thank you for what you're doing and all the sacrifices you're making to be able to do it. Thank you. That means a lot. Let us know what you think and join the conversation at interloperinterloper.com slash podcast, where you can leave us a comment, ask a question, or tell us what we missed or need to go deeper with. Interlopers vision is putting money into the hands of artists
0: saying the things we aren't supposed to say. If you'd like to support artists or this podcast, go to interloperinterloper.com slash funders to find out ways you can help increase creativity and conversation.
1: Finally, we release the podcasts, new exhibition series, and more on the 29th of each month. The 29th of each month. The 29th of each month. So set your calendars and follow us on Instagram
0: at interloper underscore unlicensed
1: to find out what's next. Be sure to follow and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. Interloper is a project of the Milkshake Club, which is powered by Shenpike. This episode was produced, edited, and recorded by Connor Walden. And Tiffany Danielle Elliott.
0: The song you heard on the podcast today is Lofi en la Fila de la Totiria by Palma Sur.